Welcome back to the Shema study. For the past several sessions, we have been talking about the love of God and how we can return that love to Him in our relationship with Him. We've been asking some basic questions and learning some basic answers about that relationship. Like, why do we love God? We learned that we love God because He loved us and made a way for us and because He is worthy. We've also been asking a new question, how do we love God? We learned that we love God by receiving His love, by listening to Him, by cherishing Him in our hearts, and by obeying Him. And last week, we learned that we can love God with all of our current and potential territory, our insides and our outsides, with everything He's given us. Remember the nefesh, breathe in God's love and breathe it back out. So today we are going to continue to talk about the how we love God. And we are going to talk about how the vertical relationship that we have with God changes our horizontal relationships with others. So we are going to do this by looking at how Jesus uses the Shema in the Gospels. But before we get into our texts for today, let's pause and just say the Shema together. From Deuteronomy 6, 4 and 5. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. This week, you spent some time doing some cross-referencing. These show us how all of scripture is connected and can give us a greater understanding as the Bible teaches us about itself. So today we're going to focus on the gospels as Jesus, the greatest rabbi, teaches us about the Shema. If you haven't already, I'm going to invite you to open these passages. We are going to go through each gospel account one by one, and I'm just going to make about eight observations about the Shema from these passages. So the first passage is Matthew 22, 34 through 40. And this account I'm calling the test, the test. Let's read it together. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the greatest commandment in the law? And he said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment, and a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. I'm calling this one the test because we don't often have insight into what's going on uh, on the insides of people when they are talking or acting. But the Bible gives us a clue into what the motives are behind this question. Here, they want to test or really to trap Jesus. The religious experts are just waiting for Jesus to make a wrong move so that they have merit to silence him. The lawyer asks one question, which is the greatest commandment in the law? But here he gets a two for one special because Jesus gives him two answers. Jesus says, one, the Shema, love God with everything, but also 
to love your neighbor as yourself. And this is a direct quote from Leviticus 19.18. I have three observations here from the Gospel of Matthew. Observation one, Jesus makes the Shema the greatest commandment. When the Bible was written, it didn't have the headers that we see in our Bible today. So although those are really helpful to help us organize scripture, we sometimes don't realize their significance until we know they weren't there in the first place. So Moses didn't call the Shema the greatest commandment. Jesus is the one who did that. And he's not just saying it is a great command. He is saying it is the greatest commandment. Jesus is taking a highlighter to it. He's putting it in bold, in italics, all the emojis, right? This should cause everyone to stop and pay attention. And that means if we are imitating Christ, we should also put it in bold, highlighter, italics, etc., in our lives. Observation two. Jesus connected loving God with loving others. Much of Deuteronomy can be categorized into these two commands. Even looking at the Ten Commandments, you can see the first section as being concerned with loving God, and the second part being concerned with how we treat others. Just like the insides of us and the outsides of us go together in loving God, loving him and loving others will also go together. If we love God, we will love others. Observation three, all the law and prophets depend on these two commands. Now, there are many laws that did not carry over into the new covenant, but in naming these two commands specifically as the greatest and second greatest commandments, Jesus is making sure that we continue to prioritize them as he does in the new covenant way of life. Not only does Jesus put these commands in this pivotal position in terms of the law, but the prophets too. So he's holding up the Old Testament and saying, this depends on loving God and loving others. Now, what happens if you go back and read the law and prophets with the lens that Jesus has given us? You will know that the content they're giving are dependent on loving God and loving others. And if you're not reading it that way, you aren't reading it and understanding it the way that Jesus did. Now, the religious audience Jesus is talking to was trained in the reading of the law and prophets. And this perspective might be the very first time they viewed it through this lens as well. So that's the Gospel of Matthew. Now I want us to turn together to Mark's account. In Mark 12, 28 through 34, and I'm calling this one the conversation. The conversation. Let's read it together. And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another. And seeing that he answered them well, asked him, which commandment is the most important of all? Jesus answered, the most important is, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. The second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
There is no other commandment greater than these. And the scribe said to him, You are right, teacher. You have truly said that he is one, and there is no other besides him. And to love him with all the heart and with all the understanding and with all the strength and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. And when Jesus saw that he answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And after that, no one dared to ask him any more questions. Notice here, we can observe the same two observations uh, in Mark's gospel as in Matthew's, that Jesus prioritized the Shema as the greatest commandment and that Jesus connected loving God with loving others. Here's some additional observations I see here. Observation four, loving God and loving neighbor is greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices. These burnt offerings and sacrifices were a part of the system of law set forth by Moses in Deuteronomy and the other law books. In Matthew 5, 17, Jesus said that he came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill them. He fulfilled the law of offering and sacrifice by becoming the final offering and the final sacrifice. It was so complete and perfect that we no longer need to perform animal sacrifices or burnt offerings in this new covenant. To this Jewish audience, this was a huge life-changing statement that they wouldn't really have understood yet, but this scribe does understand that Jesus is prioritizing loving God and loving neighbor over sacrifice and over offering. This is completely consistent with what the Old Testament has been leading up to. In Hosea 6, 6, it says, for I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice, the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. So loving God and loving neighbor is greater than burnt offerings and sacrifices. Observation five, loving God and loving neighbor is kingdom culture. Jesus said to the scribe here in Mark's account that his understanding of this situated him close to the kingdom of God. The way of life looks like loving God and loving neighbor, and this is what God's kingdom looks like. It's worth bringing up Matthew 6, 33 here, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. It seems to me like this loving God and loving neighbor life is the way to seek the kingdom and that all other categories of our faith will come when we're doing these two things. This is why you will see love God and love others is the mission statement of so many churches and they aren't wrong. It's impossible to miss the kingdom of God if you're doing these two things. By the way, check out the fruit of these churches. Not every church who has this mission necessarily executes it, but those who are genuine, you will absolutely see kingdom fruit there. Last account, the last gospel we're going to talk about today is Luke, Luke 10, 25 through 37. And this account I'm calling the story, the story. Let's read it together. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? 
He said to him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, and who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance, a priest was going down that road and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise, a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper saying, take care of him and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. I love that Jesus includes a parable here because we can talk about this concept all day long, but here Jesus has given us an example that will help us visualize this kind of love. So here's a couple more observations I see from this passage. Observation six, loving God and loving neighbor is life-giving. In his account, Jesus says in Luke 10, 28, do this, meaning loving God and neighbor, and you will live. Which really affirms the message in Deuteronomy about life or death choices, following the path of life, God's path, or choosing the path of death, which is every other path. Check out Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 16 for more on this. Loving God and loving others is life and good. And just as we do not have to wait until Jesus comes back to experience his kingdom, we also don't have to wait until Jesus returns to experience life. Life begins now as you receive the love of God and respond in love to him and to others. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Observation seven, love is active. Love is active. Love goes, does, and gives. Love goes. We see this not only in Jesus telling the religious expert to go and do likewise, but we also see it in the way the Good Samaritan goes to the hurting man and goes to the inn when he is taking care of him. Love also does. Anyone know that quote from Bob Goff? Well, Jesus said it first, right? Jesus gave the simple command, do, both at the beginning of this passage and at the end. Do this and you will live. You go and do likewise. Love also gives. The Good Samaritan gave many gifts. He gave his time. He's willing to be interrupted. He gave his money, his energy, his olive oil and wine, his animal. It sounds to me like he was loving with all of his lev, nefesh, and mayod, doesn't it? These physical offerings came 
when he had the fruits of compassion and mercy in his heart, and they poured out through his nefesh. Observation eight, Jesus expands our idea of neighbor. Jesus expands our idea of neighbor. We find the answer to the question, who is my neighbor? Who's the other we are to love? I'm so glad the scribe asked this question because in response, we get the parable of the Good Samaritan. Jesus asks a question to him in return. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among robbers? And again, the man has the right answer, the one who showed him mercy. So I love here that Jesus does not give an answer that limits who is my neighbor, but rather begins to expand our understanding of what a neighbor is. This concept is not new with Jesus's teaching, but rather written into the very fabric of how the Jews were to treat others throughout the law by loving the poor, the widow, and the sojourner. So who is my neighbor? Well, it seems to me that Jesus is asking who needs a neighbor today, including but not limited to the poor, the sojourner, those in need of mercy. Jesus expands this again and again throughout his teachings in some really challenging ways. In Matthew 5, 43 through 44, he says, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. This is a really tough teaching. My neighbor includes my enemy. Jesus expands further in Matthew 25, 34 through 40, when he says how we treat the least of these is how we treat him. So how we treat our neighbor is how we treat God. And when we love our neighbor, the poor, the sojourner, our enemies, the least of these, anyone in need of mercy, the miracle is that we are loving Jesus himself. After reading these three accounts together, we, came, we come to our main truth today, and it is so simple in the way it's worded, but can be rather complicated when we try to practice it right. We love God by loving our neighbor. We love God by loving our neighbor. I want us to take a minute and think about the audience in all three of these accounts. They were religious folks. They were Pharisees, scribes, and experts in the law. Why didn't they have this down? Didn't they know Moses better than anyone? Well, let's go back to the Gospel of Matthew. In Matthew 23, 1 through 12, after Jesus gives the greatest commandment, he expounds on how the religious experts are specifically misusing the Shema. Let's read it together. Then Jesus said to the crowds and to his disciples, the scribes and the Pharisees sit on Moses' seat. So do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works they do. For they preach, but do not practice. They tie up heavy burdens, hard to bear, and lay them on people's shoulders. But they themselves are not willing to move them with their finger. They do all their deeds to be seen by others. For they make their phylacteries broad and their fringes long. And they love the place of honor at feasts and the best seat in the synagogues and greeting in the marketplaces and being called rabbi by others. But you are not to be called rabbi, for you have one teacher, and you are all 
brothers. And call no man your father on earth, for you have one father who is in heaven. Neither be called instructors, for you have one instructor, the Christ. The greatest among you shall be your servant. Whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and whoever humbles himself will be exalted. Jesus is calling the religious people out because they're more concerned about how others view them than actually loving God. They're not practicing what they preach because they're not loving others. Instead, they're using their position to gain power and prestige and accolades. They might have those phylacteries, the scriptures that they had tied on their head and on their hands. And they have the tassels to remind them to love God. And they know the right answers, but they don't actually have the heart change. And how do we know? Because their lives create burden instead of blessing for others. Jesus is saying the evidence that you are observing the greatest commandment is not the size of your phylactery, but the size of your love. And he also humbles the Pharisees, the religious folks, by making the hero in this story a Samaritan, someone the Jews would have been at odds with or looked down upon. The good example here is contrasted with the religious folks who passed by the hurting man instead of helping him. The Samaritan, the one who was despised by the religious experts, is the one being praised here for stopping to help. I recognize that some of you might feel like this is Christianity 101. Yeah, love God and love others. I've heard that for years. I got that down years ago. Well, might I suggest that I think the Pharisees might have felt the very same way. They had the right answers, but they weren't applying it to their lives. The Pharisees were, the Pharisees were knowers, but not doers. So it begs the question, where do you see yourself in this story? Are you the expert? Are you the knower? Are you the doer and the lover? I think we need to revisit how we do this daily with the Holy Spirit. Let him talk to you about how you are to express this and who you are to express it to today. I think the landscape, especially over the past couple of years, have really changed for us. So just as the Israelites needed this teaching when the landscape for them was changing, we need it today too. We are now living in a post-COVID world, one where it seems where we all have strong opinions that divide us into one category or another. And the teaching is the same, but the situations where it is expressed is different and new. How can we show mercy to someone who believes differently than I do on masks or vaccines, for instance? How can I love someone who identifies differently politically than I do? How can we love those who have been hit particularly hard by this pandemic financially or health-wise or otherwise? Who needs my mercy today? Who can I be a neighbor to today? I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we had some examples of beautiful, creative, uh, compassionate responses from the church. Now, a few years into it, I'm sensing quite a bit of compassion fatigue. And I think this comes from a number of reasons. Again, I think it has to do with not making sure we receive 
first and let our love be the overflow of what God gives us. I also think sometimes we feel like we have to have it all together ourselves before we serve someone else instead of leading from our need so God can show his strength in our weakness. I think it also comes as a result of us trying to be God and save the entire world by ourselves. I think the invention of the internet can be can make us aware of a billion problems at one time. That's overwhelming. What possible difference can I make in this endless sea of problems? Let me suggest to you that God is not asking you to show compassion to every single person in need right now at the same time but I think he's asking you to move towards one person in need. Trust him to be the God of all and let yourself be the servant to the one he's called you to today. Go after the one as he does and start with one act of obedience in the way of compassion towards another soul. I take so much courage from this story that Jesus used to exemplify the greatest commandment because this is a story of one person serving one other person. The second greatest commandment is singular, love your neighbor. God wouldn't ask us to do it if he wasn't supplying everything we need to do obey. Filling your need with the abundance of himself as you grow closer to him in the process of loving your neighbor. Let's just call out and be done with the guilt because this is truly not a guilt thing, but a good thing. Jesus came to give you life and give it to you abundantly to experience his kingdom. Loving him and loving neighbor is the best place for you. And you don't have to wait until heaven to do that, but can start here by diligently, freely and generously loving your neighbor out of the overflow God gives you. So how do we love God? We love God by loving our neighbor. Let's end today by reading from one more disciple, John, in his epistle, 1 John 4, 7 through 11. This just perfectly sums up the idea of loving God and loving neighbor. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. Dayton Women in the Word exists to help women read their Bibles. If you have been blessed by our ministry and free resources, would you please consider giving a donation at daytonwomeninthewordcom slash donate. Oh,